Hey, college kids, just a few things here in the description box or whatever the description box is called for a podcast. I've linked Dr. Frindell's website, In-House Test Prep, if you want to go check it out. Also, next week, I'll be releasing an interview with Michelle, who is currently attending, or she just got into Harvard, and this is her first year. And it was my first Harvard interview. Finally got someone willing to come on and be interviewed. So that'll be released next week as part one, and then the week after will be part two. So subscribe so you do not miss that, and enjoy the episode. Hey, college kids. Welcome back to my podcast, Who Cares About College? In today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Frindell. So if you could introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Kelly Frindell, and I've been teaching test prep for about the last 20 years. I've been working with students for the SAT and the ACT and helping students get ready for college. All right. So let's jump in right into SAT, ACT. First question is, even though many schools are not requiring it or are still uncertain about whether they're going to have any testing in the future, why should people take it? This is really important. Like, why should we still take the SAT, ACT? Yes, and that is a good question because right now there is a lot of uncertainty about what is happening with the SAT and ACT with college admissions. So that first year of college, uh, excuse me, the first year of COVID, most colleges did drop the requirements for tests because the tests just weren't being offered. And then some schools said they were going to be test optional for a few years. Some went completely test optional. Mm -hmm. Uh, The University of California school system went totally test blind, which means they don't look at tests at all. But what it turns out um, is that a lot of the schools that say they're test optional are kind of test optional in name only. And so what people are finding out is even though they're saying you don't have to submit the scores, it is actually to most people's advantage to go ahead and submit scores to a lot of schools. And this is still changing quite a bit. And so a lot of the schools originally had a three-year timeline and that three-year timeline is coming to an end in the next year or so. And schools are going to be making different decisions. And some schools have actually already gone back to requiring school scores. Like MIT has decided they're going to require scores from now going into the future. And so it's tempting to say, oh, I don't have to take it. All these schools are test optional. And some of them legitimately are, but plenty of them, you still really do need test scores. And besides the admissions part, a lot of scholarships and merit aid are still based on scores as well. And so not taking tests and not having those scores available can keep you out of um, accessing those scholarships. Mm -hmm. And one thing like this test optional is beneficial for some students because they just, some people just can't do standardized testing. So, and because of this, I think people are like, oh, I need a really high score if I want to submit. How do you know when your score will help you versus hurt you? Because you would presume like the people with the highest scores are only submitting people with like mid range are not really submitting anymore. So at what point do you know, like I should actually submit my super score or not? Right. And I don't deal with the admission side of things. I mostly just do test prep, but I've been talking to a lot of educational consultants who do that side of things. And what they've told me is generally, if you fall within at least the 50th percentile of scores for the school and scores are available, you can find them easily on the internet. If you just Google the name of your school and 50th percentile SAT or ACT, it will tell you where the median scores are. And if you're generally in that range or above, it does seem to make sense to submit your scores. And different schools have different requirements and 
and different um, score ranges. And so for one school, it may make sense to submit your scores, but for a more selective school, it, it might potentially be better not to submit them. And so it is it is individual and case by case, but if, if you're generally in about the middle or above, it's worth it to submit your score. All right, so let's get into scholarships. Um, one thing before we get into like SAT and what you can do with that, um, with the PSAT, I think mo- most people know when they take it, like I think junior year, yeah, that's when I took it, that it's for national merit. You reach a certain benchmark, you qualify and you keep going, semifinalists, whatever, right? But besides that, can you use your PSAT for anything else? Just a quick question. Not really, no. So the PSAT is typically given junior year. Some schools have their students take it earlier. I have a lot of students who take it in 10th grade, occasionally in ninth grade. And junior year is the year that the scores count for national merit. And about I think it's around 1% of people qualify potentially um, for national merit. And the score is just the first part. There's a whole bunch of other steps you have to take after that. You have to validate it with an SAT score later. And so in the past, national merit was a really good scholarship at a lot of schools. But in the past 10 years or so, a lot of that merit aid has dropped out. And so many schools don't even offer it at all. Some schools will offer you just a very small scholarship. And if you're looking at very selective schools, most of those students are going to be national merit scholars anyway. And so it's it's not necessarily something that is super special, but it, it can be helpful. It's a good designation to have. It looks good on your resume. Um, but that is the main thing that it is used for. The other thing that PSAT is useful for, though, is to demonstrate interest to college to different colleges because you can elect to send information about your scores just kind of generally out there into the the college world and schools can contact you um, based on your interests. And so some people like it for that reason. But other than national merit, it is mostly just a practice exam for most people. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we can move on to SAT, ACT, and like what you can do with that. So I'll let you take it from here. Like what scholarship opportunities are available for SAT, ACT scores? So a lot of that is school dependent, but especially a lot of the state schools have very clear criteria. If you get this particular score on an SAT or ACT, you qualify for scholarships. So like in Florida, I know they have a scholarship called Bright Scholars. And if you reach a certain level on those, you automatically qualify for scholarships. And different states have different criteria like that as well. And so especially if you know you're going to a state school and they have criteria like that, it can be really worth spending the time and energy and money to get your score up because sometimes just a small investment can lead to a really large uh, scholarship and they can make a significant difference for people. And individual schools have their own criteria and there are also independent scholarships as well. And a lot of those are based on scores. And I don't know if you'll know this or not, because this is more on like the financial aid side um, for school, but like for schools that are not state schools that don't have the clear cut requirements, but they do give merit aid. Maybe you have like more selective schools that give merit aid. Like how dependent is your merit aid on your SAT, ACT score? Like, do you think it contributes a lot maybe for like the more upper schools? From from what I've heard, the scores do factor in pretty heavily often into merit aid. And again, that isn't my area, so I'm not as well yeah. versed in it. But I do what I have heard is that at the very selective schools, merit aid is sometimes harder to come by because everybody qualifies for it. And yeah. so often some some of the higher level schools don't even offer very much merit aid at all because all of their students are excellent and it's it's difficult to distinguish people on those characteristics. Okay. All right. So 
Another question, probably yes or no answer is, can you use your SAT or ACT for any outside scholarships that are not any like institutional forms of aid? <laughs> you can. And so a lot of organizations in the communities offer scholarships and sometimes they're smaller scholarships. So they might be $500 or $1,000, but several small scholarships can add up to big money. And a lot of those, because they're not involved necessarily in education, they might be like a rotary group or a church group or a religious group. They use scores as an easy way to to rank people and compare people. And quite a few of those scholarships still are using scores as, as a basis for, for choosing the scholarships. Okay. And would you recommend just like going on Google, finding like scholarship search engines and just going from there? <laughs> yeah. And so if you Google scholarship for your sports or for your religion or for any activities you're in, or even your town, you'll find stuff. And there are directories. Uh, I don't know one offhand that I can tell you, but there are directories of scholarships. And generally, some of those directories ask you to pay money for them. In general, you should not pay money for a directory of scholarships. You can usually find most of that information for free and other sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll like put some scholarship websites down like the description because I know there are a lot of free ones that actually works like yeah you should not be paying anything you're paying for I don't wouldn't trust right yeah all of that information is freely available elsewhere okay so next let's talk more specifically about um we can talk about SAT strategies and the ACT because they're two completely different tests so let's start with the SAT so for both the math section and then the English section what strategies would you recommend like how to approach it when you're starting to prepare So for the math section, especially after these last few COVID years, one of the things that I really recommend before you even get started with the actual prep is brushing up on just your standard math skills. And because on the SAT, there is a note calculator section, you do need to know your times tables. You need to know how to do long division by hand. You need to know how to find percents and decimals and that sort of thing. And what I've found is quite a few students have either forgotten those skills or they never learned them because everybody missed so much math in those early years of COVID. And so the first thing I have people do, and it seems kind of silly to be studying times tables when you're a junior, but if you don't know your times tables, it is really difficult to do the SAT math section with no calculator. And so that's the first thing I have people do is study the basics, get brushed up again on their times tables, relearn math formulas, relearn math vocabulary. And then once you have that basic foundation, then you can start into working on the problems. And for SAT, the math especially is, it's its its own version of trickiness. Uh, SAT math is very weird and it is not really the standard way that you might learn in school. And so learning, there there are resources that you can seek out. Khan Academy has some good free videos. There's plenty of stuff on the internet. You can get a book, but it is worth it to learn some of the strategies for the math section because they are not intuitive. And if nobody tells you them or you aren't exposed to them in some way, there are a few students who will just naturally get them. But I found for most people, it isn't intuitive at all. And they do need to learn those things. But the good news about the SAT math, and this is true for all of test prep, for all of the tests, the material is highly predictable. It is the same stuff over and over and over again. And so I usually have my students use the official books for SAT. It's a big giant blue book with about 1300 pages in it. It's got 10 practice tests. And that information is actually freely available on the internet as well from Khan Academy. They provide those tests. And for the English section, the English 
is the grammar part. And for that, I really recommend that people review grammar rules first, just like I have them review the math skills. I have them review grammar rules because I'm finding that a lot of students don't know how to use semicolons. They don't know how to use a dash. They don't know what a colon's for. And they may have known, but they don't remember. Or again, they may have just missed that in these last few years. So a good grammar review at the beginning is important. And then going through the material over and over again through practice problems is also a really key step because like I was saying earlier, this stuff is predictable. And most of test prep is just pattern recognition. And the way you get better at patterns is to see them and do them. And the more problems you can do, the better. But what's really important too, is as you're doing practice problems, I have a lot of students come to me and they say, oh, well, I worked through all the, the problems in the book. And I said, well, did you check your answers? Did you see what you missed? And they say, well, no. And just doing problems without reviewing what you've missed and seeing those patterns and learning where your weaknesses still are isn't really very useful. Okay. Okay. And you skipped on a one very important for us STEM kids. How do you do the reading passages? That's too late for me, but oh my God. Yes. And the, the reading passages are, I find are one of the harder sections to improve. And it part of, part of the issue with that is test prep reading skills are not necessarily the same as reading comprehension skills. And so there are strategies for dealing with the reading sections about um, how fast to read it and which questions to do first and that sort of thing. And also there, there are strategies within the section. So there are keywords that often tip you off that an answer choice is wrong. Like if it has extreme words in it, if it has words like all or must or never, that's usually a red flag that an answer is wrong. And so there, there are some test strategies like that and how to go back to the passage and read around where they tell you. But one of the challenging things with test prep is helping people be better readers because it just isn't geared necessarily mm -hmm. towards helping you be a better reader. It's helping you to, to take the reading section on a test better. Um, and so that that is a little bit of a more complicated answer because the answer really starts, go back in the past, five years ago and start reading a lot. Yeah. And so for students who are younger, that's really what I recommend is read as much as you can and read as many sources as you can read the news, read, you know, read the back of the cereal box, read things on the internet, find good books to read. Um, because once you do get to your junior year, reading is a challenging thing to, to change your skill level. On. And I'll just say something as someone who's taken the SAT twice, my scores are released tomorrow my second set oh. so I'm waiting but um yeah reading for me it's that's the worst section by far and I'll say like the answer is in the passage you should not be interpreting anything like read it digest understand don't make any assumptions don't make any interpretations because it's gonna very clearly state what the answer is right I think people and just that's what I mm -hmm. did. And that, that's something I have to tell my students too, is there is no outside knowledge required or needed on the reading section. And so you shouldn't, even if you know that topic very well, because sometimes you'll get a topic and you're like, oh yeah, I just studied this in school, or this is something I'm super interested in. And you do not want to put any of your own interpretation in it. And so typically if it's a detailed question, you should be able to point to something in the passage that says, here is exactly mm -hmm. that answer. And it'll be worded differently, but there should be something you can point to. And for the questions that ask you to infer things or to think about what the author was feeling or something, even though there may not be an exact place you can point to, there's still an idea in there and you're not just making up something on your own. Yeah, you, you never, that was my mistake on the first time. I was like making up stuff and I was like, but no. 
Mm-hmm. So let's move on to ACT. I also took the ACT. It was not that good for me, but anyways. So can you quickly explain how the ACT differs from the SAT? And then again, like tips and advice for each mm-hmm. section. Yes. So the ACT and the SAT, they used to be very different from each other. They've become more similar over the years. And so there aren't as many differences as there used to be. The SAT has four sections. It's got a reading comprehension section, an English section, which is grammar, the math no calculator, and the math calculator section. ACT also has four sections, but they're slightly different. It has a reading comprehension. It has the English for the grammar. It has one math section, which you can use a calculator for all of it. And then it also has a science section. And the the reading and the English are fairly similar to the SAT reading and English. There's there are some structural differences, but in it's general, a bit more fast paced. The writing, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That one's more fast paced. Yes. The timing on the ACT is indeed harder than the SAT. You have uh, fewer seconds per question, but the content tends to be a little bit more straightforward. And so with the math section, there is only one math section. You can use a calculator for it. I do find that that the ACT math is more like the stuff that you're used to learning in school. And it's largely just, here's a problem do it. And SAT math is more, find this really tricky way to to do this and then do that and then take the reciprocal of it and then do this. And that is not a way you've learned in school. ACT math is mostly, did you learn this stuff in school or not? And in that way, it's a little bit easier to prepare for. The science section tends to be the wild card for a lot of people because (laughs) there's no equivalent on the SAT. And the science section is an interesting section because it's about science, but you don't really need to know science to do it because what they do is they give you about six different experiments and the experiments can be about anything. They can be biology or physics or chemistry, and they give you data and some information about the study that they conducted. And largely it's a data interpretation kind of section. So you are finding information from the charts. You're making inferences about the hypotheses that they give you. Um, you might be describing the procedure that they did and understanding the steps of the scientific method. There are a couple of questions. There's 40 questions on the science and typically about two to three of them might be outside knowledge type questions where you do need to know a little bit about. They often ask about the pH scale or photosynthesis or scientific method steps, but largely since it's just about science, you don't need to sit down and learn science necessarily. So it's not like you need to memorize the periodic table. You don't have to learn chemistry formulas. You're just, you're doing a section about science. And often when people see that one the first time, it tends to freak a lot of people out because they're like, what was this? I don't know what to do with it. But that section is also pretty learnable and pretty coachable as well. And that one in particular is a good one to spend a lot of time with just doing lots of sections and lots of practice sections of it because it, that's the only way to get better at it since it is so different from other types of testing items. And with the students that you've worked with, like, would, do you notice like certain students are better with the SAT and certain students are better with the ACT? I, I have seen some patterns. What I've noticed is that students who are good at tests tend to be better, tend to be fine at both tests. They, they will usually score well. For a lot of test takers uh, who really struggle with tests, I found, personally, I found that ACT is often a little bit easier of a test to study for. And the timing is harder. That That is true. But sometimes it doesn't matter, especially for people who are kind of middle-level test takers. A lot of the really hard questions, which are often at the end, they're so hard that 
those are students who are probably not going to get those questions right anyway. And so if they don't have quite enough time to finish everything, often it doesn't matter because there's some of the questions that are beyond their level anyway. And for, for me personally, a lot of the students I work with have extended time for various learning uh, differences or ADHD or anxiety. And so the timing on the ACT with extended time is, is reasonably manageable. And there are ways to manage it if you have the regular time for it. And for a lot of students, like we were talking about earlier, the math on the SAT is so tricky that if you are not good at math to begin with, or you struggle with math, it, it is often hard to learn how to do math in the SAT way because it, it is its own thing. And so it's not a good way. It, <laughs> it, it's interesting. I, I love SAT math. I think it's fun. And I've met a few people who like it too, but for a lot of people, it's just kind of torture. And so often people find it a little easier to study for ACT, but it, it is individual. And the way that I determine which tests we should prepare for, because in general, you should pick one and yeah. prepare for it because it's hard to, to split your energy between both of them. I usually just have people take a practice test, a practice SAT and a practice ACT. And sometimes there are clear differences that, okay, this one is clearly better than the other one. And if that's the case, you should always go with that one because there's no reason to work hard to pull your lower score just up to, to get up to where mm -hmm. your other one is when you could just improve the other one to begin with. If they are reasonably similar to each other, which happens sometimes, then I usually talk with the student and see what their own preferences were. Because some people are very clear, I want nothing to do with the ACT or I want nothing to do with the SAT. And if they have a preference and their scores are about equal, I'm happy to go with that one. And the, the good thing is preparing for one of them mostly prepares you for the other one anyway, because the content does overlap so much now. And so a fair number of my students may end up taking the other test at some point anyway, because the work that we've done will help them with the other one anyhow. All right. So we've talked about SAT, ACT. We'll come back to like studying tips, but we're going to talk about another test, which is the SSAT and the ISE which are like boarding school, magnet, like those kind of schools that require a test. It's not like just like a public school. So I'm going to let you take it from here. Like, what are those tests? Um, do Are they like standardized like the SAT, ACT, or do they vary school by school? Yeah. So the SSAT and the ISEE are standardized tests. They're, they're like the SAT and the ACT, but they're for students who are looking to go to boarding schools or private schools. And typically people take them usually in either fifth grade or eighth grade, typically looking to enter into sixth grade for middle school or ninth grade for high school. And the, the tests do have some similarities to SAT and ACT. Um, they're structured sort of the same way and they have the same importance. And for both of those tests, they they cover pretty similar material. They have vocabulary on them, they have reading comprehension, and then they also have math. And because they are given to younger students, you, you cannot use a calculator on either of those tests. And so the skills we were talking about earlier, the multiplication and the division and percents and fractions, those are all super important to know, um, to be able to, to work on those tests. And vocabulary turns out to be a huge part as well. So on the SSAT, they have synonyms where they just give you a word and then they give you five answer choices and you pick one that's similar. And they also have analogies, which a lot of students have not seen. They used to be more common, but they've been taken off a lot of tests. So things like kitten is to cat as, and then you'd put like puppy is to dog. And those 
are largely dependent. There's some there's some test prep tricks for those, but those are largely dependent on do you know this word or not. And so mm-hmm. for those tests, studying vocabulary is a tremendously important thing. So I have my students study flashcards and lists of high frequency words. And for the SAT, there used to be a lot of vocabulary on the SAT, so I always had my students study vocabulary as well. And luckily now you don't have to, but for these younger tests, you you do. And the same for the ISEE, they also have synonyms, and then they have what are called sentence completions, where they give you a sentence with a blank, and you are using context clues to to fill in the appropriate vocabulary word for those. And the the strategies for studying for those tests are very similar to SAT and ACT. You need the basic math skills. For those ones, you do need to study vocabulary. And then for the reading comprehension, it's the same issue as for the older tests. You can learn the test prep strategies, but it, it is difficult to increase your comprehension and your reading speed in a short amount of time. And so those are things that are best worked on in previous years. And one quick question before we keep going. Uh, What's the difference between the SSAT and the ISEE? So they're basically from two different companies. So just like SAT and ACT are two different companies, it's the same thing. And so different schools want or accept different scores, but they're they're largely similar to each other. They're just two different companies. Okay, so we'll go with that. We can go on to like more study tips now. so we can answer, can you answer for both the SAT, ACT, and then the SSAT, ISCE? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this is more for parents so they know, or maybe students too. How long from the test date should you start studying? And also, is there like a better time of the year to like choose a test date? Like, do you think there are some test dates like, oh, it's better for you to do it this time because you have less stress this time? So like, how do you choose a test date? And then how far from the test date should you start studying? prepare. Yes. And that is a good question to think about because you do want to start putting things in place early because if you wait too long, it makes everything so much harder to try to scramble and get everything fit in very quickly. And so for my high school students for SAT and ACT, there are differing opinions about this, but I personally usually like to have my students take at least something by the end of the fall of their junior year. So by by December or so of junior year, I like to see people have at least one test under their belt. And the reason for this is because it leaves plenty of time to take a second test. And most students will end up taking a test a second time. And it's fine to do that. There's no problem in doing that. And that allows people to either take it in the spring or potentially in the summer before their junior year. But there are some people who say, wait until the spring of your junior year. And for a lot of students, it's probably fine. But for me, I, I feel more comfortable doing it a little bit earlier so that people have more options. And some of that actually is dependent too on what math class people are taking. If students are just in algebra two during their junior year, they may want to wait a little bit more towards the spring because there is quite a bit of algebra two material on both tests. But if people are already in pre-cal as juniors, it doesn't matter as much because they've had the material they need for the test. And Typically, I recommend starting probably somewhere between three to six months before you're going to take a first test to study. And some of that is um, dependent on where people are starting out. And a practice test can give you a good idea of where you're starting out. So if you take a practice test sometime towards the end of your, excuse me, towards the end of your sophomore year, maybe that's early summer before junior year, that can give you a little bit of a clue too of how much time you need to be spending for things. But 
it's months. I, I don't usually recommend years. There are some people who like to start with their kids in ninth grade and keep doing it. And I just, I, I don't believe in that particularly one, because there's, they will burn out. That is a long time to prepare for a test for two. The tests are about to change. Anyway, the SAT is going to be changing in the next year and a half. And it is three. It is, it's going digital. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Spring of 24. And that. so Yes. And that will change everything. So any studying that people are doing right now, if they're younger than 10th or 11th grade, they're going to be taking an entirely different test anyway. And so I typically don't recommend starting that early. It's okay to practice math skills and reading skills and and things along those lines, but I I don't recommend full prep at that time. And for for the SSAT and IC, pretty similar. Those tests are usually offered mostly in the fall. Uh, because of how the admission cycle work. And with those students, I usually recommend they start around somewhere between June and August uh, before they take the test in late fall. All right. So another thing is, let's say you choose three months before your SAT. Like, let's say you choose whatever SAT, and then you choose to study three months before it. So with within those three months, how would you um, kind of separate your time? Or like, how would you... Um, I guess, study in those three months leading up to the test? Like what is a general routine that you would give? So I would recommend if people are studying on their own, the thing that I would recommend highly at the beginning is make an actual plan and write it down. Because mm-hmm. I I know both from having been a student and also working with students for so long, there's so many things and so many competing interests and SAT and ACT are not always the most fun or exciting things to study for. And if you don't have an actual plan to do it, you I have a lot of parents who hand their kid a book and they're like, here, study this. And the book ends up under the bed and the kid never looks at it. And mm-hmm. I can't say I, I blame them too much. It's, it's hard to, to do it on your own. So coming up with an actual plan of, okay, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm going to spend an hour working on these things. And once a month, I'm going to take a practice test and, or having some kind of general plan in that way to, to provide some structure. And at the beginning, like we spoke about earlier, covering those basic skills, working through practice sections, and then taking some practice tests. And timing is part of it in there too. With my students, I usually wait till about halfway through to start working on the timing because it's important to me that my students learn how to do things correctly first and learn what the tricks are and learn the skills and learn how to answer problems. And once they have those down, then they can start working on the timing. And timing is a thing like reading comprehension. It's hard to change because by the time you're 15, 16, 17, your processing speed is pretty much what it is. And that is not going to change a lot. So I can't, people come to me and they're like, well, I can't finish the test. Help me be able to get through it faster. And I can't always help people get through it faster, but what I can help them do is figure out which problems are worth spending time on because there are some problems that are so hard that most people are going to miss them. And if there's a pretty high likelihood you're going to miss a problem, you shouldn't spend five minutes on it on a question you're going to miss anyway, when you could get maybe two easier questions right in that same amount of time. And so part of time management is trying to work faster, but also working smarter to know what's worth it and what's not. And some of that comes with experience and practice as well. Mm-hmm. And another thing is, um, let's say, let's say you're really good at one section in general. Like, like you're a math student, and you're already in like calc. By the time you're mm-hmm. in your junior year, you 
very well know your math. You don't need to practice it. You know, you've done a practice test. You've gotten like a really high score. Do you think it's worth continuing to practice even if you're like really, really, you're solid on that? Or should you just focus on the other section? What I do in that case, because I have some students like that who who are scoring almost perfect on one section and then struggling in the others. What I typically do when I'm working with them privately, I usually have them do some of those sections at home for homework, just, and not as much as the other sections, but it is important to keep working on those because if you just leave it, sometimes you you lose some of those skills. And so I have them do some typically on their own. And then if they have questions on things, we can go over those, but we don't necessarily spend as much time together on them. Um, but there, sometimes people who are really skilled at math actually struggle with some of the easier questions, because if you're in calculus as a sophomore or junior, there, there's a fair amount of fourth and seventh grade math on the easier problems of SAT and ACT. And if you haven't done fourth or seventh grade math in a lot of years and you're busy doing calculus, it's easy to forget some of that stuff. And so, and it, it it's silly to lose points on easy questions because you haven't reviewed them. And so there is a balance. I do have people still work on them some, but that frees us up to focus on, on the other sections. And some of test prep, honestly, is there's a balance too between figuring out where am I likely to get points back and what am I weak on? And sometimes the, the things that you're weak on, you can improve to a certain extent, but it also makes sense to really focus on the places where you're likely to, to get those easy points back as well. All right. So my really my only last question is to um, like tips to deal with test anxiety. Because, you know, some people are like just not good at testing and some people get really anxious, like they can do it. But once they enter the test room, it's like, oh, my God, it's actually happening. So can you give some like tips that students have um, used in the past and have Mm -hmm. been proven successful with ACT or like any of the boarding school tests? Yes. And what I find is something I talk with my students about all the time. And we talk about this early and often is knowing what these tests are and what they measure and what they don't measure. Because a lot of people get really wound up about these tests because they've heard about the importance you know, all their life. And this is the thing that determines your future. And it really isn't. And a lot of people really think that SAT and ACT tests are IQ tests that they say how smart you are. And they're not, they're not IQ tests at all. And really all they measure is how well you do on this test on this day. And that's it. And a lot of people are really caught up in thinking, oh, my test score is a measure of how smart I am or how well I'm going to do in school or if I'm a good person or not. And I have a lot of people who come to me and they they see their very successful parents and their siblings who maybe sat that just walked into the testing room and got a 34 or 35 out of 36 on the ACT with no preparation. And they come to me and they say, why, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I, why am I dumb? Why am I struggling with this? Cause I can't walk in and get a 34 or 35. And there are some people out there who can do that, but the truth is that isn't most of us. And for most people, these tests, they're hard. They're designed to be that way. And so just knowing at the beginning of this, that, it, you're not expected to know how to do all of it when you walk into the room. It is learnable. It is coachable. And it also doesn't define your future. Knowing that part often calms people down a little bit because I, I have a lot of students who come to me and they're just like, I can't do it. It's too much. And so putting it in perspective is always an important thing to do. And then for the actual stress management tips for things, the studying is really important. So being able to make a decision to make it a priority 
helps with some of that stress because a lot of my students come to me and they just, they haven't made the time to study. And so then they, they feel bad that they haven't done their work. And then it just spirals of, I didn't do this. Okay. Now I'm too scared to do this next one. And now three weeks have gone by and they have done nothing. And so having a schedule in place is helpful. And also I sometimes have to tell my students to some work is always better than no work. And so even if you have a schedule, if you get a little bit off track, do whatever you can, because 20 minutes of math is better than no minutes of math. And so, and you can't learn everything either. And so there, there are a few special people in the world who can just take the test and get a perfect score, but it, it, it is a very small percentage of people who can do that. And for everyone else, not everything on the test is going to be learnable. And so if you can let that go, the idea that I have to know everything that frees you up a little bit mentally to say, okay, I'm going to work on the things I'm strong on. I know there's a couple of things that aren't intended for me and I will do the best within the abilities that I have because their test prep is, it is successful. Usually if you put the time and energy and effort into it, most people can see improvements on their score. There are real silly ceilings to people's scores though. And there is a certain point you will hit where you really have hit your level of your score. But up until then, there's usually plenty of room for improvement. Um, But just knowing it isn't the end of the world. It isn't everything. It's important. Sure. But it is, it is not a measure of self-worth at all. All right. Thank you, Dr. Frindell, for coming on today. Are you in Pacific time? Um, I am actually in Hawaii. And so I'm on Hawaii time. What? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, is it like um, early morning there? It is 930, which is not too bad. Oh, okay. I've been doing meetings. I've been doing meetings at six. Things just happen early here. So that's um, no big deal. Oh, all and, right. Have a good rest of you, your day then. Are, are you still, you're still in high school? I hadn't realized that. I thought you were in college. No, uh, senior what, high school. Where are you applying? Oh God! So I live in Maryland. So UMBC, UMD. Um, forget my schools. Drexel, GWU, um, Urbana, Champaign, Champaign. I don't know how it's pronounced. Um, Pitt. Northeastern is like my dream school. I love that school to death. Northeastern, um, Vanderbilt's probably like my um, lowest acceptance school. Um, Georgia Tech, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and probably like one more that I'm forgetting. Something <laughs> wow. like that. Yeah. Got it. So where are we? It's what September. So are you just putting in applications now? <laughs> or not yet. Um, <laughs> It's a process. It's a lot of mine are early because I can't do ED. I don't have like the financial security for ED, but I am doing EA for everything I can. And most of them I'm going to be doing EA except for Vanderbilt and GW because they don't offer EA. So, and they're all November 1st. So <laughs> I got to get on that, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Don't my, my, my friendly advice for those don't leave them to the last minute. It's like test prep because it just, the, the longer you leave them and they are painful to do, but just get them knocked out and, mm-hmm. and then be done with them. So you can, cause you're about a seat. You're a senior then. Yeah. Yes. Just get them done. Get those stupid essays written and then enjoy the rest of yeah, your it. It makes me glad to know that like in less than two months, all of what a high school mm-hmm. has led up to will be over. Yes. Yeah. That was awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is a very admirable adventure adventure for you. So congrats. And I will look forward to hearing it. I'll put it on my social media and stuff. All right. Thank you. Enjoy Hawaii. All right. Thank you. Good to see you. Bye.